All right, good evening, camp. How are we doing? Right on. Hey, if you got a Bible with you, John chapter 18. We're going to push to the back end of John chapter 18. That's where we'll be tonight as we dive in. I want to get you to think about tonight um, and thinking about what it means to receive some truth or receive some information or receive a fact and what you have to do or, or not do with that. Let me put it this way. Um, if I were to tell you right now that currently at camp, it's 64 degrees Fahrenheit. That, that, that would mean, like, you'd be like, all right, cool. Like, like you're not going to, like, react to that. It's not like, oh, my gosh, that's crazy. You would just hear that, and that's information, and it's a true fact, but it's something that doesn't really move you. Or, or if I were to tell you that I was born not in California, but in the great state of New York, that is a true story. That is where I was born. And yet you hearing that truth doesn't really call you to anything. It doesn't really demand anything out of you. See, there are two types of truth claims. One claim that demands nothing out of you. But then there are different kinds of truth claims, and I think we all understand this. The type of truth claim that demands a response from us. In fact, the minute we hear it, whether we want to or not, we will respond in some way or another. I want you to imagine someone comes running in through the back of the chapel, and they're panicked. They interrupt my sermon. They go, everyone, look at me real quick. The forest is on fire. No, it's not. Okay, chill. But, but imagine we kind of looked out the tent and it was indeed on fire. He says, the forest is on fire. You need to follow me if you want to live. Now in that moment, he has made a true statement. And that true statement is something that demands a response out of you. You can follow him and go to safety. Or you could sit in your, your chair, cross your arms and be like, nope, I don't even believe in fire. You know, you could just kind of sit back and be like, it's no big deal. But either way, you have responded to a true statement. Uh, let me put it a different way that might hit a little closer to home. A number of times in my life, family members of mine have gotten this news. Imagine you get the news, you have cancer. Like we've just discovered it in your body. And here's what we need to do. There's an aggressive treatment, but you need to start this now before it spreads further and actually ends your life much younger than you ever dreamed it would. The moment you hear that news... You, it demands a response out of you. Like when you hear that news, it demands some kind of response. You can do nothing and let the cancer run its course, or you can respond and do something. But no matter what, when you hear certain truths, certain realities of the world, it demands a response. And here's what I want you to know tonight. Tonight I am going to speak a message to you that demands a response. And there is not a single one of you tonight who will not respond in some way or other to this message. See, tonight, I want you to know the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. Tonight, I'm going to proclaim to you the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the central story of the Christian faith. I want you to know that everyone in this room will respond in one way or another. Some of you will receive it with joy, perhaps for the first time in your life, and confess and repent of your sin and trust Jesus. And others of you will cross your arms and say, I don't want anything to do with that. But whatever choice you make, you have responded to it. See, this is that kind of message. I remember I was 13 years old. I was going to a summer camp just like this. And we were at summer camp. And I've told you, I grew up in the church. And growing up in the church, my choice every Sunday was, which church am I going to go to? But I told you earlier in the week that what happened later in my life, as I approached eighth grade year, I started to have to decide not which church was I going to go to, but what was I going to do with Jesus? 
what was I going to do with Jesus? And so I'm here, and I'm at summer camp, and so many times in my childhood, there were these gospel invitations given, and my hand went up every single time. I was always like, me, I want to accept Jesus. But nothing really changed in my life. But then for some reason, summer before eighth grade year, a preacher was preaching. He was preaching out of Romans chapter 12, and he said that you can offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your acceptable, reasonable act of worship. And he offered us to do just that, to give our whole lives, our whole selves, over to Jesus. And I don't know why, but the Holy Spirit drove me that night to accept Jesus, and my whole life changed at that moment. Like I had grown up in church knowing all kinds of things about Jesus, but don't miss this. The summer before my eighth grade year, a summer camp just like this, hearing this gospel invitation, I went from knowing things about Jesus to knowing him myself. And tonight, that is what I want for you. See, I'm going to give an invitation at the end of this message tonight for some of you to put your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, to go from hearing and knowing things about Jesus to knowing him yourself. I'm going to invite you to respond to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on your behalf. And what has Jesus accomplished on your behalf? That's a great question, and that's exactly what we're going to look at tonight. Again, we're going to be in John chapter 18, but let me catch you up on the story. Again, Jesus is teaching, and he's doing miracles, and he's telling people to go and leave their life of sin. In John chapter 10, Jesus declares himself the good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. He is dead, he is in a tomb, and Jesus walks up and says, I have mastery over death, and he raises him to new life. In John chapter 12, Jesus is anointed with an expensive perfume poured all over his feet. And then he rides into Jerusalem as the Messiah, King of Israel. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet and commands his disciples to love just as he has loved them. John chapter 13 begins this climax where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and his whole story is coming to a climax. This is the part of the movie where you know it's about to get good. And here's what we see in John chapter 14. Let me read this for you. You can flip there if you want. John chapter 14, verse 1 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking. You believe in God? Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would not have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So I just want you to hear me on this tonight. The Father in heaven sent Jesus to let you know that he is preparing a place for you. Meaning there is a place for you in God's family. There is a place for you in heaven. Some of you think God would not want, not want nothing to do with you, but the God of the universe is just screaming to you, I have prepared a place and I want you in my heaven for all of eternity. Some of you don't feel welcome in your own family. Some of you don't feel welcome in your own friend groups or at your school. But the God of the universe says, I have a place for you. Jesus says, I prepared a place for you. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And then Jesus says these words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making an unbelievably exclusive claim here. He says, do you want to experience this home that God has for you forevermore in heaven? Do you want to be brought into the family of God? Do you want your sins to be forgiven? Do you want to have a right relationship with God? Here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And here's what I've learned throughout my life. 
of everything Jesus ever said, these two sentences, probably more than any other, drive people crazy. And maybe there are some of you in this room who read this, and you think this sounds narrow-minded, silly, and small. Like, how could you possibly claim Jesus is the only way? And again, I'm not making that claim Jesus is. And the reason we have a problem with it is because we fully misunderstand what God is actually like. See, so here's the problem. Um, a lot of people think God is kind of like the force in Star Wars. You ever thought about the force in Star Wars? It's kind of like this energy field they describe. It's all around you. It's just kind of there. It doesn't have a personality. It doesn't have a name other than the force, right? And it's just kind of like a power you can tap into from time to time. See, that's what the force is. But I need you to know this about my God. My God is not an impersonal force. My God is a personal God. And we can all understand forces in whatever way we want to in this world. But when it comes to people, write this down if you're taking notes. You understand people. You get to know people on their terms, not yours. Let me say that again if you're taking notes. You can understand people on their terms, not on your own. Let me give you an example. It'd be like this. So let's say after chapel tonight, you walked up to me and you're like, Brian, it's just been so cool hearing you preach this week. I would love to actually like get to know you a little better. I've heard you preach, but I'd just love to hear like a little more of your story and your life. Would you ever be willing to like share a little more with me and I could get to know you? And imagine if I said to you, oh man, that'd be so great. Like that sounds like an absolute blast. What if tomorrow during free time, I'll be right out there on the deck in front of the snack shop. Let's talk then. And imagine you just like grabbed my shirt and went, no, it must be right now. Tell me everything about yourself right now. Now, that would be a weird moment, right? I'd be like, uh, sorry, uh, security, right? Like, I'd be very, very concerned. Why? Because if you did that, and the reason you snicker at this example is because here's what you realize. That if someone wants to get to know you, they have to get to know you on your terms, not theirs. So if someone says to me, I want to get to know you right now, and I'm not willing to do it, they're not going to get to know me. Or let me give you a different example. Anyone in this room, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Chris Pratt. Anyone? Oh, okay. Okay, you've heard of him. Let me ask a second question. Raise your hand if you know Chris Pratt. Oh, oh, none of you do, right? And here's why. Be because, listen, the reason you know things about Chris Pratt, but you don't know Chris Pratt, is because Chris Pratt gets to sort the terms of who gets to know him and how. So you can know all kinds of things about Chris Pratt, but in order to know Chris Pratt, you have to do that on his terms, not yours. And if you happen to be walking down the street and you saw Chris Pratt and you ran up to him, you're like, be my best friend. That's not how it works, right? He gets to set the terms of how you get to know him because we get to know people on their terms, not on ours. Do you know that the same thing is true with our God? You can get to know God. You cannot just know things about God, but you can know God personally. But hear me on this. You can only know God on his terms, not on yours. And you know what the terms of God the Father are? on how you can get to know him, here's what Jesus says. Let's put it back on the screen. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's terms of getting to know him are Jesus. If you want to know God, if you want to know the Father, if you want to have a home in heaven forevermore, be part of God's family, have your sin forgiven, you don't get to make up the way on your own. You go through the way Jesus, God says through Jesus, and that is Jesus, the way the truth, the light. You can receive him, you can reject him, but you cannot make up your own way because we get to know people, including God, on their terms, not on ours. 
I want you to see how the story continues in John chapter 15, 16, and 17. Jesus begins to teach, and we'll get to some of his teaching tomorrow night. But he teaches about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. In John chapter 18, we pick up the story where Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest followers. Like if you've ever been stabbed in the back by one of your friends, Jesus gets what that's like. If you've ever been let down by someone close to you, Jesus knows what that's like. He's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested. Peter denies him three times. And then we pick up here in John chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, verse 28, it says this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early in the morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out and said to them, what charges do you have and what are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back in the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is this your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight to prevent the arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. In fact, for that reason I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. So don't miss the moment here. Pilate is the one who has the power, the authority, the actual ability to crucify Jesus, to set him for execution. No one else is allowed to do this. Pilate can. And here's the showdown between Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate's trying to understand what Jesus has done wrong. He's trying to understand if Jesus is a king. And Jesus is standing in front of him going, you don't understand. You think you're in charge, but I'm actually in charge in this moment. And whatever I say will actually be because this is Jesus who is one in being with the Father. And then in verse 38, we see this famous verse. If you have a highlighter, a pen, underline, circle this verse, it's fascinating. What is truth, retorted Pilate. See, Jesus says, whoever's on the side of truth sides with me. Like, if you want to know what truth is, you side with me. And Pilate looks at Jesus, and he doesn't ask, who are you? He's not trying to understand Jesus. He floats out this sentence. He just says, what is truth? You know what Pilate is doing when he asks, what is truth? He's doing the ancient version of what a lot of people nowadays do when they throw out phrases like, well, I don't believe in absolute truth. I believe in my truth, and you believe in your truth, but there's no truth we all have to live by. See, Pilate is rejecting Jesus, but don't miss this. He's not rejecting Jesus because he doesn't believe in Jesus. He's rejecting Jesus because he doesn't want to believe in Jesus. Why doesn't he want to believe in Jesus? Because Pilate is the king, and Jesus is saying, nope, I'm the king. And do you know what? There are some of you in this room who have spent your entire life rejecting Jesus, not because you don't believe in him, but because you don't want to believe in him. And the reason you don't want to believe in Jesus is the same reason Pilate did, because you're the king of your life. You're in charge. You call the shots. No one tells you what to do. And some of you don't want anything to do with Jesus, not because you don't believe in him, not because you don't want to believe in him, but because you have this little part of you that says, if I trust Jesus, I actually have to turn over my life to him. And I want to invite you tonight to lay that down. I want to invite you tonight to lay down that little thing inside of you that says, I, 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 want, I, I don't want to believe in Jesus. 
Because to side with truth is to side with Jesus. And to reject Jesus simply because you don't want him is to side with lies and deceit rather than the truth, who is Jesus himself. See, Pilate's not interested in what's true or not true. He's interested in his own power. And my fear is for so many of you, you will walk away tonight not receiving Jesus because you're interested in the same thing. You want to call the shots. You want to be in charge. You want your life to be your own. And to come to Jesus is to do the opposite. It is to say my life is forfeit. It is no longer my own. But I live for Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. I want you to see how it goes on. They have this dialogue here, and eventually we get to John chapter 19 and verse 1. It says this. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus, and he had him flogged. So the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put him in a purple robe, and they went up to him again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapped him on the face. So what ultimately happens is Pilate recognizes I can be in charge or Jesus can be in charge. So Pilate makes the decision that everyone wants to make when they don't want to be, have their authority challenged. He decides to put Jesus to death, to crucify him. It says he has Jesus flogged, and this flogging is actually a lighter flogging than Jesus will receive later. It's usually with a rod or a stick. Jesus is beaten to show that he is not in charge in this moment. It says, furthermore, that a crown of thorns was put upon his head. Now, that's so easy for you and I to just be like, yeah, a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. We've seen this picture before. But have you ever actually, like, reached your hand into, like, a rose bush or a bush with thorns and pricked your finger, like, one time? You do that, and it's like, oh! Ow! Right? Like, one time. Here's what they did to Jesus. They put a crown with dozens and dozens and dozens of thorns, and pressed it down upon his head, right on your forehead, where the, where, the, where the blood vessels will burst so easily, where pain receptors are out of control crazy, and they pressed it down on his head, and blood begins to drip down his face. They've beaten him. Blood is dripping down his face, and to add insult to injury, they slap him. We're told they spit upon him. They mock him. They belittle him. What they're trying to show in this moment is, Jesus, you think you're powerful, but the actual power here is Rome. You think you're the king, but you've got nothing on us. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They slap him in the face. Go down in chapter 19 to verse 15. It says, but then they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asks. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. In other words... The only king of our world is the political and economic and military superpower of the world. It's only Rome. It's not Jesus. You should crucify him. And then in verse 16, we see one of the most tragic and iconic moments in history. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And that is exactly what they did to my Jesus. See, here's what I want you to understand. That right at the center of the Christian faith, is a bloody, mangled, brutal, horrific death of Jesus. And I think what so often happens, especially if you grew up in church, you kind of chalk it off to like Jesus died. And so in your mind, you're like, yeah, he was on the cross, he just kind of died, and he came back to life. Or, no, 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 don't, 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 don't blow past that. Jesus didn't just die. Write this down. Jesus was slaughtered. I need you to stop sanitizing the cross. Stop sanitizing the crucifixion of Jesus. At the center of our faith is this brutal, bloody crucifixion of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Here's how it would have happened. 
See, when they decided to crucify someone, the first thing they would do is they would properly flog them. See, I said Jesus was just beaten with a stick or with a rod, but flogging would go entirely different. See, with flogging, they would have a post set up, and they would require this person to kneel at the post, and they would bind their hands around the post. They would strip them of all of their clothes, and then they would whip them. And when I say whip, you think of like a leather thing like, that would just kind of smack, and that's kind of what it was, except it was a lot worse. This device they used would actually include glass and bones and rock shards at the end of it. It would cross across their back and rip open the flesh. Sometimes it would break bones. Sometimes it would wrap around the rib cage and tear out the rib cage. Ancient sources tell us that some people did not even survive this flogging. They never even made it to the cross. But not our Jesus. Jesus endures this. And then they asked Jesus to carry his cross up to a hill outside the city. It's the heat of the Middle Eastern sun. He is dehydrated. He hasn't eaten or slept all night. He has been on trial all night. And he drags this cross up a hill. He collapses. He cannot even do it on his own. They bring him to the top of the hill, and they lay him down on the cross. Now, when we say they nailed Jesus to the cross, we think of nails, but the nails were more like railroad spikes. They didn't put it through the hand because what they learned very quickly is a nail through the hand would tear through this part of the skin and be useless. They put it instead right here through the wrist. And even if you touch your wrist right now, you'll recognize how sensitive this part of your body is. And the nails would drive through Jesus' wrist. They would lay him down and nail him right through his feet and hoist him up on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is bloody. He is brutalized. He is mangled beyond recognition. In all of our pictures of the cross, we have Jesus wearing something to kind of be modest. There's no reason for us to believe that Rome wasn't out to humiliate him. He is naked, ashamed, embarrassed, hanging there for the world to see in all of his humiliation. As he's on the cross, you might think that someone dies on the cross because they bleed out, because they've been bleeding from their wrists and from their feet, but that's not so. The way people would die on the cross was an entirely different thing. See, when you're hanging in this way, the Romans figured out that your body would actually start to fill your lungs with fluid. You would actually begin to suffocate and drown. And the only way for you to get a breath on the cross was to push up on your feet and get one breath until you collapse back down. Until eventually our Jesus had his lungs filled with water. And pushing up one more time, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And Jesus dies. Jesus suffers on the cross. But here's what I need you to know tonight. I describe the horror of the crucifixion of Jesus, not to just like stir your heart or to get you to feel really bad. I want you to understand this, and this is absolutely shocking, that the physical pain Jesus endured on the cross was more than anything we could imagine. In fact, the word excruciating we have in the English language literally comes from the crucifixion. Like, it literally comes from that word. Like, it is the most painful way of executing people humans have ever figured out. But here's what you need to know. The physical pain Jesus endured on the cross was not the most painful part of the experience. The most painful part of the experience was not the physical pain Jesus endured on the cross. The most painful part of the experience Jesus endured on the cross was the wrath of God being poured out upon him for your sins and for mine. See, the picture, the physical pain on the cross is meant to point us to the spiritual agony that Jesus was experiencing. I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 27. We'll have it on the screen. It says, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment... So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. So here's what you need to understand about my Jesus. 
When Jesus died on the cross, it was not just a bummer. It was not just a brutal, bloody thing. That on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus was enduring and absorbing the penalty for your sins and for mine. Let me make this personal for you. When I was in high school, I was a sinner. Right now, I am a sinner. When I was before I got saved, I was a sinner. But let me talk about when I was your age. I had already come to faith in Jesus. I already put my faith and trust in him. I was saved. But can I just be real with you? I was in high school and I was looking at pornography. I had just gotten my first laptop and that was the thing that was happening. I was lying to people around me. I was crossing lines with my girlfriend that I never should have crossed. I was stealing things from people. Not big things, not dramatic things, but I was taking things that were not mine. I was filled with pride and I was filled with anger. I was filled with wickedness and sin. You want to know what's so beautiful about this? When God sees my sin and my wickedness, And all of the ways I've rebelled against him, he is filled with wrath and anger toward that. There is a punishment that I am due for all of my sin. There was a punishment that should have been aimed at me. But instead, on the cross, it gets taken away from me and instead put on Jesus. So all of the wrath and condemnation and punishment that I deserve for all of the ways I have sinned throughout my life are not put on Brian Howard. Instead, they are put on a naked, bloody, bruised, mangled Jesus hanging on the cross. The wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus. The condemnation for your sin is poured out upon Jesus. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath dry, and there is nothing left for you. This is why Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says there's no condemnation for you. Not because what you've done isn't bad, but because Jesus already absorbed all of that on the cross. That's why, again, John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, this is his final words as he's about to die. Jesus said, it is is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus cries out, it is finished. The Greek word here for it is finished is the word tetelestai. Tetelestai in the ancient world wasn't a word that was usually used with religion or God. It was actually a banking term. And what it meant was the debt has finally been paid off. It'd be like if I owed someone $100 and I finally paid them the $100, they would give me a receipt and take a stamp and put the word to tell us die on it, meaning you don't owe anything anymore. It's all paid for. It's all covered. Your debt is gone. There is no longer anything you owe to this person. You know what Jesus spoke over the entirety of human history in that moment? He said, your debt is done. It's finished. You don't owe anything anymore. It is finished. It's like this. So um, March 1st, 2013, my wife and I get married. And it's this wonderful, incredible wedding ceremony. The next morning, we wake up from our hotel room. We go down to Los Angeles International Airport, and we're taking a trip out to Hawaii for our honeymoon. And so I'm so excited to be going out on our honeymoon. But then here's something I learned about my wife on the honeymoon as we start traveling for the first time. Um, There's certain people who are like, I will get to the airport with just enough time to walk onto the plane and travel. That's me. My wife is like, I will get to the airport six and a half weeks earlier, and we'll sit there and wait. And that's what we did. We were there like way early. And so we decided to go into this restaurant and we're going into this restaurant. Here's what you need to know about anyone who just gets married. Um, The moment you get married, you get to use a new word you've never used before. The word husband or wife. And so I was so excited. Like everywhere I went in security, I'd be like, excuse me, I'm going to let my wife (laughs) go first, right? And I'm so excited about this. And so I'm like inviting her to go. And like, I'm just constantly using wife. I'm like, make way for my wife, right? And and so we come to the restaurant and I ask, I'm like, can I have a table for two myself 
and my wife, and she's so embarrassed, but I don't care. Um, and so we sit down, we eat our meal, and, and then we're kind of checking the clock, and we're taking our time, and eventually it's like, okay, it's time to go. Uh, and so I asked the waiter, can you bring over the check? She comes back, she goes, hold on. She comes back again and says, hey, I just want you to know, um, someone in the restaurant heard you talking about just getting married. And I'm like, everyone heard. And, and they decided to pay for your meal. So, so yeah, it's paid for. It's covered. And this was like this weird and wild moment for me, where I'm like sitting there at the table, and someone else has paid for my meal, and I don't know what to do in that circumstance. Because I'm used to handing over a credit card or handing over some cash and being like, let me pay for the meal. But in that moment, the meal was already paid for. And so me trying to pay again, be like, don't accept their payment. Let me pay for it instead. doesn't even make sense. It was already paid for. The deal was already done. There was nothing more I owed. So what did I need to do in that moment? I said, thank you. I got up, and I went on with my life. Do you know that that's exactly what Jesus offers for you for your sin? Jesus paid for your sin in entirety. Not just the sins you've already committed, but the sins you'll commit when you go home next week, and the next month, and the next year, and 10 years from now. Jesus has paid for all of it. And so you don't have to pay for it anymore. You don't have to try to earn your way back to God. It's already been paid for. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus has already taken it upon himself on the cross. You know what I like to say to young people like you? Like, when you sin, you don't have to beat yourself up anymore. Not because your sin isn't serious, but because Jesus got beat up for you on the cross. So when you stumble in your sin, you can stop being like, I'm the worst and God hates me and it's no good anymore. Like, Jesus already got beat up for you. Stop doing that. I tell people that because Jesus hung naked and ashamed on the cross, you do not have to live in shame over your sin anymore. It's not that your sin's a good thing that you celebrate. It's just you don't have to walk in the shame of God would never love me and I can't even approach him. Jesus endured that for you. And do you know that on the cross when Jesus cries out these words, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus is being cut off from the Father so that you will never have to be. You will never have to be. So you never have to live in this kind of way where you're like, because of my sin, I can't worship. Because of my sin, I can't pray. Because of my sin, I can't know God. No, in that moment, Jesus says, all of that is finished. Just let me speak to you, young man, young woman. Your sin is fully, finally, forever forgiven in Jesus. That is what the cross is all about. The central story of the Christian faith is a bloody, bruised, broken man absorbing the sins of the world for your sake and for mine, and at the end of all things, shouting out, it is finished. And he extends that offer of forgiveness to you. And here's the question I want to answer tonight as we close. The question is, how do you receive that forgiveness? How do you receive that forgiveness of sins? How do you live in such a way that you're no longer living in this shame, in this brokenness, in this mess where you can't fix yourself? How do you do that? And the answer we're going to find in the very next chapter. See, they took that same Jesus down from the cross and they laid him inside a grave and everyone wept and everyone thought it was over. Everyone thought this was the end of the story. Everyone thought it was done. But one of the things you'll learn if you follow my Jesus long, ago, is, long enough is just when you think it's all over, it's just getting started. Like, just when you think your story is over, God's like, mm -mm, that's not how I roll. I resurrect things to new life. And that's exactly what he does in John chapter 20. It says in verse 6, it says he's, there's this disciple in Peter. And this disciple, we understand, is John himself. And they hear from someone that the tomb is empty. Like, these women come back, and they're like, we went to the tomb to take care of Jesus' body, and it's empty. He's not there. 
And their first thought wasn't, he's alive, he rose from the dead. Their first thought was like, oh no, someone took the body. Someone messed with him. So they raced to the tomb. And they get there, and here's what it says, that John gets there first, and it says, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, he also went inside. He saw, and he believed. You want to know the first thing you must do if you want to have your sins forgiven? If you want a home with God forevermore? If you want to be made a child of God, the first thing you must do is believe. And listen to me, to believe is not just intellectually agree with the things of God. To believe is to trust in Jesus. It is to actually put your faith in him. Like, let me give you the perfect example of this. All of you are believing in something right now without even realizing it. Do you know that all of you are believing in the chair you're sitting in right now? Like all of you, when you sat down tonight, had this belief, this confidence, this thing where you're like, this chair will not collapse when I sit on it. And so you are resting fully in the chair. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus isn't to fill your head with a bunch of intellectual ideas. To believe in Jesus is to say, I'm going to rest confidently in him, believing that he has done everything that is needed for me to be saved. What does John do? John gets to the tomb and John believes. It goes on this way and, and down later in chapter 20. You got Mary and she rushes to the tomb and she can't find Jesus. And she's having this conversation with this person. This person shows up and she's like, hey, 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 do you know where Jesus is? And he's like, who are you looking for? And she's like, I'm looking for Jesus. And she's like trying to figure it out. And she's so hurried and her mind is all over the place. And some of you can understand what this is like. Like your mind just feels like it's going a million different places, a million different directions. And suddenly in verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. John comes to the tomb and he believes. Mary is going all over the place looking at a million different things, stressed out and frazzled. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus speaks Mary's name. And can I tell you how beautiful this is about my Jesus? That he knows your name. He cries out Mary. I just think in this room he's crying out names. He's going John, Peter, Daniel, Ben, Jeremy, Lexi, Kelly, Sarah, he's just like crying out your name saying, would you look at me? Would you turn to me? Would you know that I know you? I created you. I know every hair on your head and I want you. I sent my son Jesus into this world to die for you. Jesus cries out Mary. And what does it say Mary does? Mary turns. See, John believes and Mary turns. What do you need to do in order to receive the forgiveness of Jesus? You need to believe and trust in him. And then you need to turn. You need to turn from your sin. We talked about this the other night. To turn is to repent. The word repent in the Greek language is the word metanoia. It is the idea of putting your foot in the ground and going a different direction. Repentance isn't feeling bad about yourself. It's not beating yourself up. It's saying, you know what? I was going this way, but instead now, I'm going to go that way. So what happened here? John believed. Mary turned. And then later in John chapter 20, you get this famous interaction of a guy named Thomas. And sometimes we give him a hard time, we call him Doubting Thomas. Like, bummer. <laughs> like, no one else has that terrible name. They're like, this guy's great, this guy's great, this guy's terrible, right? Doubting Thomas. And, and Thomas is not there when Jesus shows up to the rest of the disciples. And so he's filled with doubt and he's filled with questions and he wants to see Jesus. And he's been seeking after Jesus just like a lot of you have. And then suddenly Jesus shows up and invites Thomas to see him clearly. Which is exactly what I hope has happened for some of you this week. 
Remember on Sunday night, like the very first sermon you heard from me, I said, this week I hope you see Jesus clearly. Not some made-up version of Jesus, not some internet TikTok version of Jesus. I hope you see Jesus for who he is. Thomas sees Jesus clearly, and in verse 28, Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. See what happens. John does what? He believes. Mary does what? She turns. Number three, Thomas sees Jesus, and he calls out. He calls out to him. What do you need to do in order to be forgiven of your sins, to be made a child of God, to have a home with God in heaven forevermore? What do you need to be saved? You need to believe. You need to turn and repent from your sin, and you need to call on the name of the Lord. And tonight, right now, I'm going to invite some of you to do exactly that. So here's the invitation that I have for you tonight. It's very simple. There's a sentence that is found all throughout the scriptures. And that sentence is found in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. I'll show it to you this way tonight. That sentence says these words. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the invitation tonight. And it is the invitation that demands a response. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary that you can be forgiven of your sins, saved, rescued, redeemed, brought into the family of God, given eternal life and a home in heaven forevermore. And the invitation is this, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's look at this sentence for just a moment. What's the first word you see up there? Everyone say it. Everyone. 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 So so you're sitting there going like, does that include me? Because I didn't grow up in church. Everyone. Does that include me? Because I've sinned sexually. I've had sex, and I know I'm not supposed to, but that's been a pattern in my life. Does that include me? Because I feel gross. Everyone. Does that include me? Because I don't know any Bible verses, and I hardly know the songs anyone's singing. Everyone. See, this expansive, beautiful, inclusive word, everyone, says this message goes out to all of you. There's not a single person sitting here tonight not included in this invitation for everyone. It says everyone who calls, who calls out, who cries out, I said this earlier, I'll say this again. You know there's only one type of person God won't save? And some people think it's like, oh, the really bad sinners he won't save. Or the people who have mocked Christians he won't save. Some people think it's like some kind of person who sinned in some kind of way. There's only one type of person who God will not save. It is the person who refuses to cry out to be rescued. That is the only type of person that God will not rescue and save. But the flip side of that is true. When you cry out to Jesus, he saves you. He rescues you. You don't have to be filled with theological knowledge. You don't have to know everything about God. You don't have to know all the answers to all the Bible questions. All you have to do is where you are in your chair tonight, cry out to God. Here's a prayer that I love. God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. God, I don't know everything about you. I'm just crying out that you would rescue me. Like if you were drowning in the ocean and you saw a boat coming by, You wouldn't sit there and go, I'd like to learn more about that boat and where it comes from and maybe who's driving it and what material it's made out of before I cry out. You wouldn't do that, right? If you were drowning in the ocean and a boat came by, you'd be like, help me! That's the invitation tonight. Everyone, everyone, everyone who calls, and then it says, on the name of the Lord, who calls on the name of Jesus, but I want to point to that word. It says the name of the Lord. Now, Now, all throughout the Bible, we'll see this word, the Lord, pop up. And in the New Testament, this word Lord is not meant to just be a synonym for God. It definitely means God, but it means so much more than that. See, the word Lord in the Greek language that's written here is the word kurios. Say that with me. Kurios. Kurios means Lord. You know what kurios means literally? 
It means king. It means master. It means the one who is in charge. To call upon the name of the Lord is not just to say, God, would you forgive me of my sins, but I have no intention of changing my life. It is to say my life is no longer my own. To call on the name of Jesus, to call on the name of the Lord, is to say, God, you are in charge now. You call the shots. My life is no longer my own. It is in your hands. I will obey whatever you tell me to do. That is what it means to call on the name of the Lord. To confess and to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, which means that Jesus Christ is King. You know, from time to time, I'm in a church service, and I've heard pastors stand up and give invitations where they invite people. They say this, to make Jesus the Lord of your life. To make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I know what they mean, and I know they mean well, but I just want to say this so clearly tonight. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is the Lord of everything. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He's already Lord. He's already King. He's already in charge. He's already seated on the throne of heaven. You know what you're going to do tonight? You're going to confess that that's true. You're going to acknowledge it. You're going to say it out loud. You're going to confess that this is already a reality, and you're going to bring your life in correspondence with that reality. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and then these three beautiful words, I love them with the core of my being, they will be saved. Will be saved. Not might be saved. Not could be saved. Not call on the name of the Lord and then try your best to go to church a bunch. And if you go to church enough, you'll go to heaven. Nope. Not call on the name of the Lord and then see if you can stop looking at pornography because that's a bad thing. You're not supposed to do that. Nope. It's not what it says. It says that in the moment you call upon the name of the Lord and say, Jesus, I need you to rescue me of my sin. I confess that you're Lord. You are in charge. My life is yours. I'm following you. I want to be with you for all eternity. In that moment, you're saved. That's the good news of the gospel. That because of what Jesus did, Everyone, 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 everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's what we're going to do right now. I want to invite some of you to do that right now where you sit. I want to ask everyone in this room, close your eyes and bow your heads. and We're going to take a moment to pray. Um, and you know, there's a reason I'm asking you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And the reason is... Um, Earlier, we read a verse that said, it is appointed for everyone, every man to die once and then to stand in judgment. And here's what you need to know. There will come a day you stand in judgment before God. Like you will give an account of your life to God. And the person sitting to your left and the person sitting to your right won't be there. So why are your eyes closed right now? Because you need to do some business with God. It's not your neighbor's business. Let me say this boldly. Your mom will not be there on judgment day. Your best friend will not be there on judgment day. Your pastor will not be there. I will not be there. You will stand before the God of the universe, and this is up to you. What are you going to do with Jesus? And so here's what I'm going to do right now. I want to lead you in a prayer. And if tonight, for the first time, you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you say, I've known things about God. I've known things about Jesus. But tonight that changes. I'm calling on the name of the Lord. I want my sins forgiven. I want a relationship with God. If tonight's the first time you want to do that, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's not a special prayer. It's not some magic prayer. It's just an opportunity for you to call on the name of the Lord together tonight. Would you just pray this in the quietness of your heart? If that's you tonight, and tonight's the night you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus, just pray, God, I confess that you created everything. And God, you created me. God, I acknowledge that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God, I acknowledge that I have run far from you. And yet tonight, tonight I want to invite you. Tonight I want to call on your name. Tonight I want to call on your name that I would be rescued and saved. 
God, would you forgive my sins? Would you give me a home in heaven forevermore? God, would you make me part of your family? God, I give all I know of you, or me, to all I know of you. God, I call on your name. Rescue and save me tonight. If that's you, you're saying tonight's the night. I prayed that prayer. With every eye closed, head bowed across the room. Here's what I'm going to ask. If tonight's the night you are praying that prayer, would you just be bold enough to open your eyes and look straight at me? All across the room, I see you. I recognize you. Now, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. Um, look straight at me. If tonight's the night you're making that decision, um, I just want to ask you some questions. Everyone else, keep your eyes closed, head bowed. This is for you if you're looking at me right now. I have two questions for you. Tonight, are you confessing that you are a sinner in need of a great Savior and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? If so, you can nod your head yes. If not, you can close your eyes. I'm not trying to force anyone into anything tonight. And then are you confessing, those of you who are looking at me right now, that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is king, he is in charge. Your life is no longer yours, but you're putting it in his hands as you cry out to him tonight. If so, nod your head yes. Let me tell you something. Based on the authority of the word of God, the promise we see in the scriptures, I am confidently looking you in the eye tonight and telling you that as you call on the name of the Lord, you are saved. You're rescued. Jesus has you part of his family. You're his child. You're going to heaven forevermore. You're part of the family. Your sins are forgiven. And this is a beautiful and a good thing, and you have done a true thing in this moment. And because you've done a true thing, I believe you have the courage to do a brave thing tonight. Because I now need you to know that when you're saved, you're not just saved for you to go to heaven. You're saved into the family of God. And as the family of God, we want to celebrate with you tonight. So if tonight's the night you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus. If you're looking straight at me right now, here's what I want you to do. In just a moment, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to stand to your feet. And I want you to stand to your feet as an acknowledgement that tonight, this night, on this evening in July, you are calling on the name of the Lord, and God is rescuing, redeeming, and saving you tonight. You've done something true. It's time to do something brave. On three, would you stand to your feet if tonight's the night? One, two, three, stand to your feet right now. Everyone else, look all around you. Look at what Jesus does. Stay standing, stay standing. Let's celebrate that Jesus rescues and redeems and he saves and he is good and he is Father. Those of you standing, you are part of the family of God. You are welcomed in as his child. Your sins are forgiven. There is a home forevermore. That tonight, because you called, you are saved. Not someday, but this day. Would the rest of you stand to your feet with those who have been saved tonight? Because we believe in a Jesus who rescues. We believe in a Jesus who saves. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he is coming back someday. And we will celebrate. We will lift our voice. Because we believe.